Well, good morning. One other uh, announcement to add is that we uh, will start, um, resume rather, our, our, our Bible methods, uh, our hermeneutics class, and we'll, uh, those that are in the class we're, we'll be meeting here, uh, actually to my right over in that section there at 1245 rather than in the classroom. So we look forward to that uh, time where we can learn uh, hermeneutics, who is a very interesting fellow. Uh, let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for your goodness and for your grace. We thank you for the calling that you have placed upon us, not only to, to know you, but also, Father, to be known by you, to uh, enter into relationship with you, that you have set us apart for the purpose of uh, renewing and revitalizing uh, a relationship that we had broken by our sin. And so, so intent are you on restoring and rebuilding and repairing this relationship that uh, you sent your own son uh, in the likeness of human flesh to bear our sin, to repair that breach, to enter into fellowship with us, that by your grace, through faith in what the precious blood of Christ has accomplished for us, we can say and, and call you Father, we can pray in Christ's name and have confidence that not only you hear our prayer, but answer them. You have given us your Holy Spirit who continues to renew us and to make us more and more holy in the image and likeness of our Savior as we are obedient to your word. We thank you, Father, that you have called us to not only know you, but then to make him known to others. And as we continue to walk through the letter of 1 Peter, we see the importance of keeping our conduct honorable among those who do not believe in Jesus. And through our conduct, through our words, through our life, <clears throat> bear witness to the power of the blood of Christ and of a loving God and Father who has gone to great expense to demonstrate his love for us. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to continue to be faithful as you are eternally faithful to us, that we might in all things give you glory, that we might in all things honor Christ, that we might in all things and in all circumstances not only bless your name, but bless those who mistreat us on account of Christ, counting that a joy to endure such reviling for the sake of Jesus because we know that he has set for us that example of being reviled, yet reviling not, of being cursed, but responding with blessing, with grace, mercy, and compassion. It is not in our nature to do so, Lord Jesus, so we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to do this. We also ask for the help of your Spirit now to open our heart and our mind, illumine us, O God, with your truth, that we might live it out, that we might know it, that we might apply it, that we might prize it, and so by doing prize you above all things. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now we're going to, I had the whole context read there from 8 to 17, but we're going to focus uh, on those two sections one at a time. So we'll look at verses um, 8 to 12 this week and then 13 to 17 next week. And it certainly comes in a context, as I mentioned in my prayer, about uh, conduct and the lifestyle in the presence of those uh, who don't know who Jesus is. And then in this section, just for a moment, Peter turns uh, to our behavior within uh, the family, within the church. 
when I uh, began uh, my ministry as a, a part-time associate pastor of a Second Congregational Church, the senior pastor, who was also part-time, was a professor at uh, Gordon-Conwell. And shortly after I began my ministry there, he started a series on the Gospel of Mark. And as I sat under his teaching, I didn't have him in seminary. I didn't have him for a class in seminary. So this is the first time I, was, I heard him preach or speak. I soon realized that sermon after sermon, one of his favorite words, one of his favorite phrases that kept coming up in almost every sermon was the word recapitulate. That as he talked about Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Mark, not a sermon passed by where he didn't mention at some point that Jesus recapitulated some aspect of an Old Testament prophecy or he recapitulated some aspect of an Old Testament teaching. And I must confess that in my ignorance at that time, I really did not know what the word recapitulate meant. So I went home and, and I got my Webster's Dictionary and I learned that recapitulate, the shortened version of that, is recap. And I know what that is because I've watched lots of baseball games and at the end of the baseball game, the sportscasters do a recap of what happened. So to recapitulate something I learned is to review, to repeat, or to summarize something that has already been said. With that in mind, let's recapitulate what we have learned so far from Peter, going back to 1 Peter 2.12, so that to recap everything that Peter has said from 2.12 on is working on this one premise, this one central command that we keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And I just want to point out, I, I think I did when I preached that verse, just to point out once again, Peter says when they speak against you as evildoers, not if. So he is talking about not a potential, but a definite. That when we are accused of being evildoers, that in, in the name of God we do things that are exemplary of Christ and it is interpreted by those who don't know Jesus as something evil, our accusers nevertheless will see our good deeds. And Peter says one of two things will happen. Either they will glorify God by trusting in Christ, or they will glorify God on the day that he judges them for their sin by refusing to trust in Christ, even after seeing the good deeds that we do in his name. So as we move on, move forward from verse 12 of chapter 2, we saw that in verses 13 to 17, Peter describes, he fills out, if you will, what the card of honorable conduct looks like. This is still under the title of recapping here. We're recapitulating some things because it's important because this flows into what's going to come next. So he essentially he defines honorable conduct in 13 to 17 as being good citizens, submitting for the Lord's sake to every human creation. Then in 18 to 25, he extends honorable conduct to slaves, telling them to submit to their masters, whether they are good or unjust. And that woven into this instruction that he gives to slaves is his sobering awareness that some of them may indeed suffer unjustly for doing good. Sensing that that will discourage them as well as his readers and even us, Peter then points to Jesus as the ultimate example of how to suffer when being treated unjustly. 
And then in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 3, Peter turns his attention to the household even further by describing the relationship that should exist between wives and their husbands, especially wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. He tells them both, wives and husbands, who submit to one another so that a believing wife, through her behavior, through her conduct, might win their unbelieving spouse to Christ. And for those husbands in Peter's congregation who are believers, he is encouraging them to live with their wives in an understanding manner so that they will treat their wives as persons created in God's image, just as they are they, and who, according to Genesis 2.18, are a helper suitable for them. So but by the time now we arrive at verse 8 of chapter 3, and Peter sums up everything he said by saying, finally, all of you, what I hear him saying is, like my senior pastor back in Second Congregational Church, let's recapitulate. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. That means we must keep our conduct honorable because that is to be expected of a chosen people, of a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Honorable conduct is not only expected, it is demanded of those who bear that title. Those who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ stand on the firm ground of his righteousness. And so it is to be the norm that our behavior reflect that. That since we are a holy people then, we must live holy lives. We glorify God when, by living like God's people no matter what happens to us, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. And finally, we show the world that we're holy people who follow Jesus by following his example. So in short, you want a, a big idea for where we are uh, and what we're doing this, after, this, uh, this morning. Holy people follow Jesus by following his example. It's as simple as that. It's really the whole message, if not our first Peter, of the whole Bible. Just someone asks you, hey, what's the Bible about? Well, it's about holy people following Jesus' example. How do you become holy? Well, you have to believe in Jesus, and then the rest is followed after that. Holy people follow Jesus by conducting themselves the same way that he did. They follow Jesus by following his pattern of behavior. And to break down verses eight, uh, 13, or 8 to 12, rather, uh, we're going to follow Jesus' example, Peter says, first of all, by submitting to one another. That's verse 8. We're going to follow Jesus' example by refusing to retaliate against those who mistreat us. That's verse 9. And then the last point would be that we follow Jesus' example by trusting God to bless us for doing good. That's the point of him quoting from Psalm 34. So let's, let's unpack that. So verse 8, we, we follow Jesus by submitting to one another because that's really what he's talking about when he says there in verse 8, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Because after telling us how we need to behave toward those outside the church, Peter now turns his attention, as he has already begun when he starts talking about slaves and masters, husbands and wives, he now turns his attention to how we behave toward one another inside the church. Because when you 
Think about it, the last thing that unbelievers, those folks who are outside the church, the last thing that they need to see is people who say they follow Jesus fighting with one another. Peter's words here simply echo that of what Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, people, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So again, we need to remember, I think it's, it's I, I, I want to make sure we keep this in mind, what Peter and, and Paul, in fact, all the letter writers of the New Testament are doing are simply taking everything Jesus has said that they heard and now applying it to particular church contexts that they are addressing. So Peter is, is writing to a particular context, a particular church at a particular time, but he is also pulling out from what Jesus has said and applying it there. We have to keep that in mind, that these letters are written out of a context of Peter's own experience, his own experience of grace, his own experience of conflict, his own experience of forgiveness his own experience of learning what it means to be loved and to love others with whom he disagrees. A similar echo to this is found in Paul's letter in Philippians 2, 3 and 4. There Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We read that verse, and we, it's almost second nature to us, particularly if you have grown up in a church or if you have known Christ for a very long time. And I think because these words are so familiar to us, we lose the sense of how countercultural and counterintuitive these instructions are to the people of Peter's day. Particularly in a culture that, well, it's not so much unlike our own because we do live in a culture in which Looking out for number one is the chief thing that we are taught to do. And so when Peter writes, look out for the interests of someone else, put their interests above your own. If you've grown up in a church, that's, that's almost like saying that, you know, something you know intuitively, but it's countercultural the way that Peter says it here to his audience. To put yourself last and put another first. As we read in terms of, um, you know, you want to be the greatest, be the servant of all. The interesting thing about verse 8 is that as it's originally written, there's no verb there. So if we were to read what the uh, English Standard Version, which is the version I'm using, if we were to read that as it would be literally written, it would sound like this. Finally, unity of mind, sympathy, Brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The, the New International Version uh, supplies the verb live. Right? ESV has has, the NIV has lived. This, it's important because that word sort of fleshes out what Peter is getting at. The NIV says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. So sometimes the, the, the supplying of a verb sort of just 
makes a, a verse more and more understandable. What does it mean to live in harmony with one another? To have unity of mind. It's, it's unanimity, not uniformity. It's not everybody thinking the same. That's a cult. Right? But it's everybody being able to think similarly, having disagreement, but then coming to an agreement through conversation, through prayer, through study, and through humility. To be willing to acknowledge the, the way I'm thinking here, that might be wrong. And I have to bring my thinking in line with what the Bible says. So to live in harmony requires that kind of humility. It's being agreeable with one another. It means striving to be sensitive to another's concerns because we share a common faith in Jesus Christ. Again, you can see how counterintuitive this is. How against the culture that it is. To lay down your right to be right in order to have a conversation, in order to be able to serve someone else. To be able to think, what will be better for them? What's in their best interest? It's about working with one another to achieve a common goal which is to ultimately glorify Christ, to serve God, to love one another, and to proclaim the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. It's why every week I appreciate the fact that when we uh, start our staff meeting, we start every staff meeting with a, a devotional prayer, and then we read a staff covenant, much in the same way that we read our members' covenant at every members' meeting, we have a staff covenant, and the last paragraph of that covenant deals with what it looks like and what it means to live in harmony with one another. It says that as a team, we choose to covenant with each other to be Christ-like in our relationships and with others by being dependable, encouraging, gracious, honoring, humble, joy-filled, patient, teachable, and transparent. That's why the staff is so nice. Because we're striving to keep the terms of that covenant. But then it ends with this. Because we're not always going to be tenderhearted. We're not always going to be gracious. And so we have this line. That in the event of miscommunication, frustration, or conflict, we agree to call a pause. Listen and accept responsibility for our actions, be understanding of the other person's concerns, and to seek reconciliation. That's living in harmony. That's, in a sense, taking the moment to think, wait, this is what I heard you say. Is that correct? Because that's how I heard it. And then you begin the process of clarifying, and reconciling, and understanding. Because the church, when you come right down to it, the church is not the place to play tug of war. It's, it's, a, it's a family-oriented community where everyone is pulling in the same direction, toward the same goal. That rather being, than being guided by self-interest or what we think is right, we are led by the Spirit. And we're guided by what God says is best knowing full well, you know, the proverb that says the, answer, the plans of the heart belong to man, the answer of the tongue comes from God, Proverbs 16, 1, right? There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death, that's Proverbs 14, 12. So we lay our plans on the altar of Christ and think, 
Is that going to promote the common good? Is that going to promote the health of the church? Is that going to promote the glory of God? Do nothing from selfish ambition, as Paul would say, or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that when we live in harmony with one another, the natural outflow of that is that we are sympathetic toward one another. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And <clears throat> sympathy is never a wasted emotion. We tend to think of sympathy as, as an emotion that accompanies a sad time, but it also can accompany a joyous time. I, I can remember <laughs> when uh, we wanted to tell our, our parents and, and, you know, siblings that, you know, we were expecting our first child and how frustrating it was that no one answered the phone. It's like, they were all busy. <laughs> you've got this great news and you've got to wait. And you're back, that was before cell phones, you had landlines and you had this annoying, which was the busy signal. It didn't ring incessantly until you got somebody, this, this automated voice that said, you know, so-and-so, and then you had this very monotone voice, it's not at home. When someone has good news to share, you can sympathize with them by really rejoicing with their good news. And then when they have bad news to share, the way that you enter into their suffering is not by saying, boy, it must be tough to be you. Sometimes the best response is silence, a nod of the head, and if it's permissible and appropriate, a hug, an embrace. And if you're truly and sincerely moved, even a tear. Some people are naturally sympathetic. Right? They cry at the end of sad movies. They cry at the end of happy movies. Jill and I will watch a movie together and we'll end up you know, weeping and we'll say, well, that was stupid. <laughs> and we just sort of, okay. <clears throat> you compose yourself. But when someone shares with you sad news, they've lost a child, a relationship is broken, they've lost a job, or they just have had a frustrating day at work. Right? The temptation is, you know, when I was playing baseball, just shake it off. Right? Just walk it off. You'll be fine. Don't say that. You may be able to do that, but you don't know that the person who has shared it with you knows that or is able to do that. I had a friend who worked in a power plant, and they had those, you know, those metal steps with the, like the serrated grating, and he, and he had a friend with him, and his friend stumbled, and he banged his shin against the edge of that metal step. You ever do that? That hurts. And his friend, just, he just sat down and put his head in his hands, and he just rocked back and forth and moaning. And my friend said, Bill, Bill, you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm just letting the pain pour forth. <laughs> when someone is in pain, and you're there with them, you don't have to do anything. Just be there with them while the pain pours forth. You can even really help them by praying for them silently under your breath. Comfort them. Give me wisdom to know what to say and what not to say. Being sympathetic, you can learn to be sympathetic by following Jesus' example. We can learn to be sympathetic by reading the words of the scriptures. Paul says, God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, 
so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now I understand that some hurts are more easily shaken off than others. And then there are some hurts, like poor Bill, this require the pain to pour forth. And that requires comfort. That requires understanding. And to offer such comfort is more than a responsibility. It is our privilege. I've had opportunities to stand with families over a gravesite or in the midst of grief after the death of a loved one, whether it was after illness or unexpected death. It's a privilege to grieve with them. It's a privilege to bring the gospel into that situation and to offer hope and comfort and peace. It's not something you shrink back from. That would be the wrong thing to do. When Jesus saw Mary and Martha, and he groans inwardly, and he weeps at Lazarus' grave, that's, that's the kind of sympathy that Peter's talking about. He was there. He saw in action. And when we're sympathetic toward one another, when we're practicing brotherly love, as, Paul, as Peter says here, we understand it's an overused metaphor. We use it all the time. We say the church is a family, but it is. We're, we're a community of strangers, all of whom have been adopted by God as his sons and daughters, brought together to live in a community from all diverse backgrounds, all diverse economic situations, all diverse experiences, both emotional, physical, and spiritual. And God, think about, think about the wisdom of God and just the, the patience of God to weave all of these disparate people into a cohesive unit. We are like herding cats at times in God's sight, and yet he has knitted us together. Our bond is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes us family. That's what makes us one. That that's also what makes us love one another because we realize that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. So there is no excuse for us to be at odds with one another. You go back even to our staff covenant. When there is disagreement, when there is Mosasani, you take a pause and you address that. And you get to the root of it before anything else happens lest a root of bitterness grow and misunderstanding grows into something bizarre and awful. So just that knowing that we're saved by grace through faith, then we have living in harmony, we have sympathy, we have brotherly love, we have family love. There's this tender-heartedness toward one another. Tender-hearted people are compassionate people. And compassion here is not a, a spectator sport because it requires putting love into action. It's more than just an emotion. It's actively caring for those who are in need. I like the, uh, the, the, Greek, the, the Greek word here that the, the ESV translates tender heart. Um, the, Greek, the root for that is the Greek word, it's one of my favorites, splankna. <laughs> it, like, it comes from here, right? The pity of splankna. It's an earthy word, splankna. Literally refers to the innards, the, the kidneys, the guts, 
right? Splunkna. It's like a word that could have originated in Brooklyn or the South Bronx, right? Splunkna. You just have it. It's, it's when you watch something or you see something, you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach, and it just moves you. You've got to do something. It's just this visceral reaction to an injustice, a visceral reaction to a suffering, a visceral reaction to something that is not right, and you feel compelled to do something to make it right. That's Blankna here. My parents often tell the story, and I was too young to remember this. My, my dad lost uh, his job. He was out of work. I don't know for how long, uh, but I... Years later, they would tell the story to my brother and me. Our next-door neighbors, who were not, uh, they were not a Christian family, neither were my parents at the time, but when they found out, they were neighbors for several years, when they found out that my dad had lost his job, my mother wasn't working at the time either, they came over to the house, and they, they handed my father a blank check, and they said, whatever you need, Fill it in. That's compassion. In the same way, that's what God does for us in Christ. Not that it's health and wealth, you understand, but it's here it is. I'm giving you whatever you need to serve me, to love your neighbor, to be tenderhearted, to be sympathetic, to show love to one another. That's splankna. Learn it. Love it. Live it. And the last quality that Peter talks about here is a humble mind. And bear in mind that like many lists given by those in the New Testament, this is not an exhaustive list. It's not as if you sort of check off these things and say, well, I've done those things, I can just go on my very way. No, there are other qualities and virtues that we are required to practice as well. Peter doesn't list them all. Otherwise, we would have volumes and volumes written here. But humility, as some have said, uh, not thinking of yourself less, but thinking less of yourself, <clears throat> or thinking of yourself less, right? It's, again, putting others above yourselves, putting the needs of others ahead of your own. The, the motto of someone with a humble mind is not my will, but your will be done. It's following Christ's own example, who said that in the garden as he prayed and asked that the Lord would remove the cup of suffering from him. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. <clears throat> it's the willingness to see the, person, the other side of the story, or see the argument from the other person's side. It's one of the most challenging things I think we have as human beings, is to sort of see an argument from the side of someone else, and then being able to come to an understanding, oh, so that's why they think that way. That's why they're seeing it in this term. Now I get it. And now you begin the process of trying to reconcile. Now you begin the process of coming to an agreement because you have been willing to humble yourself to think, I may be wrong in this. I may be right as well, but I'm at least willing to consider there's another way to see the issue. Peter's talking to members within the family. And it's interesting, too, you read through most of the New Testament letters, and who are they written? They're written to dysfunctional churches. They're written to churches that are in need of being united in mind, sympathetic, 
compassionate, showing love to one another, and humble toward one another. The world has enough problems outside. They ought not be infiltrated into the church so that what happens out there happens in here. We should be countercultural in that way. So we follow Jesus' example by submitting to one another in the way that Peter describes. And then in verse 9, he talks about following Jesus' example by refusing to retaliate against those who hurt us. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So here again, he's pointing us back to Jesus' example in 2.23, that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I don't know if, it's, if the expression is still around anymore. I remember growing up as a kid, the, 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 the maxim in the world was don't get mad, get even. You ever heard that? <laughs> Maybe. Now it's like don't get mad, just cancel everything. Um, Peter says you can get mad. You can see something that makes you angry. You can be angered by being mistreated, but you can't get even. Why? Well, it has something to do with uh, a thing called the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 5, Jesus said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So when Jesus says that, he eliminates every excuse we could possibly give to justify retaliation and taking vengeance against those who hurt us. And as if that wasn't enough, Jesus reiterates that same principle in the golden rule in Matthew 7, 12. In everything, treat others as you would want them to treat you. That lays the foundation for what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 12, about keeping our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Because honorable conduct rules out retaliation in any form whether it's on social media, whether it's physical, whether it's verbal, whether it's nonverbal, and take that from someone who is skilled in passive-aggressive behavior. No retaliation. Rather than trade insult for insult, we're to follow Jesus' example and to be quiet. Why? <laughs> well, I had a friend who grew up in Chicago, the tough part of Chicago, and he said, early on in my life, I learned a very simple rule. Don't let my mouth write a check that my body can't cash. That's a very rough paraphrase of Proverbs 18.6. A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. Right? It'd rather be wronged. I'm not saying this is easy. This is completely counter-humanity. Because our human nature is to seek revenge. It is to strike back. Just watch little kids when they're fighting over a toy. Right? They didn't learn that. That's just innate. We have to unlearn that. It takes great mental and physical strength not to retaliate. It takes a courage that is otherworldly not to retaliate. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie 42 about Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball in 1947. If you haven't, I suggest and encourage you to do so. 
wonderful film. Robinson was playing uh, minor league baseball, and he was noticed um, by Branch Rickey of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Now they're the Los Angeles Dodgers. They used to play in Brooklyn. Rickey was going to sign Robinson to a contract in 1947. This would break the color barrier. There were no black baseball players in Major League Baseball at that time. The Negro League had its own league for that. So Ricky knew that he was doing something risky, but also historic. And knowing that Robinson would endure the, the most vicious kind of racism if he was to succeed, Ricky asked Robinson, who was known to have a temper, could you control your temper if I sign you to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers? And he specified it by saying the white Brooklyn Dodgers. And when Robinson said he could control his temper, Ricky then began an epithet of racist words and laid out situation after situation, calling Robinson all sorts of names, poking at him. And then finally, after he stopped, Robinson says, I get it. You want a man with the guts not to fight back. And with that, Ricky's tone softens. He says, no, no. I want a man with the guts not to fight back. People aren't going to like this. They're going to do anything to get you to react. Echo a curse with a curse, and they'll hear only yours. Follow a blow with a blow, and they'll say, the Negro lost his temper. That the Negro doesn't belong. And here's the line. Your enemy will be out in force and you cannot meet him on his own low ground. We win, said Ricky, with hitting, running, fielding. Only that. We win if the world is convinced of two things, that you are a fine gentleman and a great baseball player. And like our Savior, you got to have the guts to turn the other cheek. That's the commandment that Robinson had to follow his entire rookie year. And if you have seen the movie, you know there was an incident in Philadelphia where the manager of the Philadelphia Phillies unleashed a barrage of epithets. And Robinson did not retaliate. If he did that, right, if he didn't retaliate, he would stay on the team. He would make history. And in the movie, there's a dramatic pause after... Ricky asks, says, like our savior, you got to have the guts to turn the other cheek. The actor playing Robinson, Chadwick Bosman, looks at Ricky, and a very determined sound in his voice says, you give me a uniform. Give me a number on my back, and I'll give you the guts. We may never have to endure the kind of racism and mistreatment that Robinson faced, or any others, because of their faith. But like him, God asks us to have the strength not to fight back. That like our Savior, we must have the courage to turn the other cheek. We must have the guts not to retaliate because we've been chosen. And we have been given a uniform. We've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And we've been given a command do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, we are to bless. But the guts does not come from us. 
It comes from the Holy Spirit who imparts it to us as we follow in the steps of Christ, trusting ourselves to God who judges justly. Because by refusing to retaliate against those who hurt us, we are choosing, says Peter, to follow our calling from God. He says, to this you have been called, so that you may obtain or or inherit a blessing. We're called to overcome evil with good, to forgive when we are sinned against, to bless those who cause us pain. It's one of my favorite shows would say, this is the way. This is the way of the cross. It is not an easy way. It is not a pleasant way. But it is the only way that leads to life everlasting. It is the only way that leads others to follow the light and to see the light of Jesus Christ. It is the only way that we demonstrate that our life has truly been transformed by someone more powerful who with a single word from the cross could have annihilated everyone there but said rather, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. That's our example. He is our example. We bless our enemies. We tell them about Christ. We bless those who hurt us so that we can show them what forgiveness looks like. We treat them with grace and mercy and compassion. We want to give them no excuse should they not repent on the day of visitation to say, well, no one showed me what Christ looked like. And then God plays the tape. We bless because that's what priests do. And we are a holy and royal priesthood. So that when we're slandered, we make sure that our speech is always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how to respond to those who slander us, revile us, and malign us. We endure mistreatment by entrusting ourselves to one who judges justly. We're blessed. We may never face the intensity of the kind of persecution that the early Christians did or that Christians around the world presently do. Nevertheless, the slight at work, the being left out of the family gathering, the shunning that may take place because of your faith in Christ, the passive-aggressive comment that is made with regard to your love for Jesus, those are the kinds of things that are, are going to require us all to be forgiving, loving, and gracious to take it, to take it, and to respond sincerely with a kind and gracious word, a word that follows and imitates our Savior. And by doing that, Peter says, we follow Jesus' example and we trust God to bless us for doing good. That's the whole reason why he gives us this recap in Psalm 34. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are under righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so the, this section from Psalm 34, written by David as he was feigning insanity before uh, one of the Philistine kings, says that God will do two things to those who seek good and seek peace and pursue it. That he will rescue his people even when they suffer for doing good, and that he will judge those who do evil against his people when his people do good. The psalm encourages us to keep following Christ's example. Peter's already alluded to what that looks like, putting away all malice, all hypocrisy, all slander, envy, and deceit. And Psalm 34 and 1 Peter share the same theme. Both recognize that God's people, when they do good, will suffer for it. Both also look forward to the day when God will reward those who suffer for doing good, following the example of Christ. Peter's a realist. He knows life is hard and will be hard for anyone who sets on the course of denying themselves, taking up their cross, and following Jesus Christ. It's hard to seek peace and to pursue it in a world that thrives on chaos, conflict, and clamor. Why do you think all the news channels succeed so well? They thrive on conflict. When was the last time you saw an hour devoted to good news? But it thrives on news in which one side is pitted against another. This is the world in which we live. This is the world in which God shakes us into it as salt from a shaker to preserve. To make salty, to increase a desire and appetite and a thirst for the righteousness that comes only from God himself. Peter's a realist, but he's not a pessimist. He's just simply telling us the way it is. And he's simply only doing what Jesus said on the night that Jesus was betrayed. After going through all of this wonderful encouragement about the coming of the Spirit in John 14 and 15, at the end of John 16, Jesus says this, knowing what is going to happen to him, knowing what will happen to his apostles, says, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. And yet, what does he do? He doesn't plan his escape, he doesn't lay plans for revenge. He simply says, Trust me. Trust in the one who has called you. Stand on that firm ground. Find your peace in me. That's, again, counter-cultural. We don't find our peace in protest. We don't find our peace in belonging to one or another political party or in having one or another position. We find our peace in Christ and in Christ alone. More than that, Jesus encourages us to find our peace, courage, and strength by following his example, that despite the suffering, the severity of his suffering, remember, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is our example. He is our motivation for blessing those who revile, slander, and reject us. He has shown us the way to seek peace and pursue it. 
by entrusting ourselves to God who judges justly. Because there's a blessing for those who do so. It's not works righteousness. It's about doing good works as evidence that God has changed us and transformed us and is transforming us more and more into the likeness of Christ. It's by showing the world that we belong to Christ by the way that we live, by rejecting evil and doing good, by not retaliating, leaving to God the judgment of those who have maligned us. I know from experience that's hard, and you know from experience that's hard as well. So let's, let me just ask this one question, and I'll end with this. How do you behave when you're not here in this room? How do you conduct yourself when you're not in church, when there are no other Christians around you? How do you behave when you're not treated kindly? And while you're pondering the answers to those questions, let me recapitulate the big idea. Holy people follow Jesus by following his example. We follow Jesus' example by submitting to one another, by refusing to retaliate against those who hurt us, and by trusting God to bless us for doing good. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are... Uh, we are your children. We are not perfect. But we know that in Christ, you have made us so. So let us live, Father. Empower us to live as those whom you have chosen, whom you've anointed as a royal priesthood, whom you have made a holy people, that we might indeed proclaim the glories of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, by so doing, keeping our conduct honorable. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.